After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. So good morning to you all. I'm very happy to be here. And the teaching today is one that I um, really enjoy doing. Um, I've done this teaching about the essence of Buddhist psychology over a number of years. Um, and it's a very satisfying and I, I hope, um, useful set of teachings for you. <clears throat> Before I start, other than the documentary filmmakers and they said they want to make movies of me before I die, which might be soon, but I think I'm a little longer. Um, you know, in your seventies, you know, you never know. Um, Actually, you never know, period. And the teaching of the one of the great Buddhist sutras says that karma can change as quick as the swish of a horse's tail. And um, if one doesn't believe that, all you have to do is drive up the road to Sonoma and Napa, where these lives were going, toodling along, just like everything's fine, the grape harvest, and, the, and then everything transformed. And we know this, actually. Um, so in part, the teachings today are, are also focused on how is it that we can live amidst the ever-changing world that is the, the reality, the impermanence, and really the, the tentativeness of life. Is there some way to conduct ourselves and to live um, with a spirit that can allow all these changes and um, stay wise, compassionate, centered amidst them all. Before I go any further, it would help me to know a little bit more about you. How many of you are here at Spirit Rock for the first time? Great, welcome. Um, the ones who've been here a lot, um, you will hear some familiar stories, some of my favorite stories. You can think of them as bedtime stories. Oh yeah, read that one again. Right, <clears throat> so you can enjoy them. How many of you are in the helping professions? Uh huh. And the other half are your clients that you brought along, probably <laughs> to help get them some assistance. Um, all right, educators. Yay! Wonderful. Happy to have that. Um, business people. Great. Artists. Wonderful. 
scientists. Not not as many as we'd like. Um, vets. How many vets do we have? Hmm. Okay. Politicians. Damn, we're striking out here. Okay. Um, and how many have been on a residential retreat here? Just to know. Wonderful. Yeah. So the focus today <clears throat> on Buddhist psychology starts with the fundamental understanding that Buddhist teachings are a science of mind. They're not so, yes, they've been used as a religion and as a philosophy, but if you read the original texts and look um, deeply at them, um, they point to the way the mind and the heart operate in this mysterious human incarnation and ways that we can learn to understand ourselves, our relationship with others, um, that bring inner freedom, well-being, happiness, and so forth. Um, and the other thing that's interesting <clears throat> and critical about them is that they're practical. And so you'll hear as we go through the teachings today um, that they are experiential um, and that there are trainings and practices that are given that allow us to both learn and to, to transform our lives. We come to a temple like this and we sit in the midst of the mystery of human incarnation. Um, and often we <clears throat> go through our days kind of taking life for granted. <coughs> Excuse me. But something greater and vaster is happening all around us all the time. And this week I've been sitting with a friend who got a diagnosis of a very advanced cancer hmm, 10 days ago and has about another week to live. Um, and uh, of course she is shocked and all the other kinds of things. Um, and part of it was I didn't think it would happen so quickly. Um, but it can. Um, what is this human incarnation? When we look at our lives, um, we can either live with habit and kind of go along in a somewhat automatic way, or we can discover the possibilities of healing, well-being, inner freedom amidst all the changes of the world, and a way to hold both the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows that make up human life. Mm. I think about the mystery of it. My sister-in-law, Esther, who died about a decade ago, um, I was with her quite a lot um, uh, during the last stages of her cancer. Um, and then I stayed home here, came back one night, and she was very close to dying. Got up early to rush into the city to be with her. Um, but I had to stop at the drugstore to pick up some prescriptions 
did it kind of hurriedly, and I was standing in line a little bit impatiently at CVS, and all of a sudden my whole body just relaxed, and I said, oh, Esther died. And I got to my car, and I called my brother, and I said, um, how's Esther doing? And he said, oh, she died five minutes ago. And I said, I know. Now, if I were to ask, how many other people have had experiences like that? You know, a third of the hands go up. Who are we? How is this possible that we can know something at a distance? Um, are we our bodies? Are we our feelings? Are we consciousness itself that's connected in this web of life? I mean, who got born into your body? And then how do you navigate? These are kind of the fundamental questions and the kind of questions that one is asked when you come to a temple or a place of deep reflection. Also have a poem to start with. Poetry is always good because it's kind of the music of language <clears throat> called the sleepless ones. What if all the people who could not sleep at two or three or four in the morning left their houses and went to the parks? What if hundreds thousands, millions, went in their solitude like a stream and each told their story. What if there were old women, fearful if they slept they would die, and young women unable to conceive, and husbands having affairs, and children who couldn't sleep because they were fearful of failing, and mothers worried about paying the bills, and women having business troubles and men unlucky in love, and those that were in physical pain, and those who were guilty. What if they all left their houses like a stream and the moon illuminated their way and they came, each one, to tell their stories? Would these be the more troubled of humanity? Or would these be the more passionate of this world? Or those who need to create to live? Or would these be the lonely ones? And I ask you, if they all came to the parks at night and told their stories, would the sun on rising be more radiant? And again, I ask you, would they embrace? And this is us. We all have the arc of our lives and the stories that we tell inwardly and to one another. And to begin to pay attention with the capacity of mindfulness and understanding to the stories that we're living out um, is one of the essential elements of Buddhist psychology and to see that we share the common elements of the story with so many others. And that wherever you are in the story, if you go out into the park, you can find those who found a kind of freedom amidst the difficulties and the glories of their life. And I think about um, a nun that I met on the northern border of Burma in China um, who had been diagnosed with a very difficult and rare illness um, and given the state of the medical care in Burma did not want to have surgery. Um, the hospitals at that time were um, 
not sterile necessarily, and it just wasn't the kind of medical care that you would want to have surgery. Um, so she went to see her old aunt, who was a Buddhist nun, and she said, you come live in the forest and I'll teach you healing and give you these herbs, um, but you have to meditate to heal yourself. This is a you know, pretty dire situation. And so she did, and she spent two years doing this healing practice, and we met her shortly well, not sometime after she had um, come back and she'd started a monastery because people wanted to know what she'd learned. She was this very bright spirit. Um, and we asked about her practice and she said, yes, um, my aunt made me sit and meditate 16 to 18 hours a day for the last two years along with these herbs and my body's completely healed and cleared now. Um, and so I've opened this temple, particularly for women who are in distress, um, those with mental illness, those who are homeless, those who are with trauma, who are fleeing the um, civil wars around uh, the northern Burma. And I teach them all to meditate. And I thought to myself, I wouldn't necessarily um, ha invite people with mental illness, the homeless, and the um, you know people with severe trauma, and say, oh, come and let's sit in meditation. And then she said, come in. And there was a meditation hall. And it was filled with 100 or 150 women who were all sitting like statues. And what it was is that the, this nun, this, this youngish woman who'd gone through this, had found a spirit that was so strong in herself that you came to see her. She had suffered very deeply with the illness and all of this. And said, you know, I'm homeless, I'm mentally ill, whatever. And she would look you in the eyes and say, you can do this. And it was like her spirit was stronger than their problems. And it was really kind of extraordinary. And when we were walking out, I was there with my beloved Trudy, my wife. An old woman, woman with just a couple of teeth came up and grabbed Trudy. Didn't speak much English. She'd obviously been through very, very hard times. She held Trudy's arm, and then she looked at her, and she pointed to herself, and she said, peace of mind, peace of mind. And you could see that her life had been changed by being there. So this is really the beginning of Buddhist psychology to recognize um, that no matter what our circumstance, there's a possibility of inner freedom um, and of well-being no matter, again, whether it's the physical difficulties or the outer changes that, that um, come so often to us. And when we move through life lost in the small perspective, caught up in our fear, depression, anger, anxiety, suffering, and so forth, Buddhist psychology opens us to a wider and bigger training. And I think of Thupten Jimpa, who was here last year. He's the translator for the Dalai Lama, wonderful young Lama himself. And he helps run the sea care training at Stanford that he started, of, um, which has eight-week programs in compassion and mindfulness. And he tells the story of one doctor who went through the training. He was in his 50s. He was a physician at Stanford. And he was depressed and burned out. The medical system is so hard. He was seeing so many patients um, and uh, so much stress. 
and he was just kind of finished uh, and undermined in some way by how demanding and difficult it was. And then he went through this eight-week training in compassion and mindfulness. And he found a way to come back to his, himself, to regulate himself, to see anew, so that when he went back to his medical practice, an old woman who'd been a patient for a long time came in and said, Doctor, you seem different today. What happened to you? Are you in love or something? You know? And he laughed because, of course, he was in love, but it was in love with life again in some very deep way. Now, Buddhist psychology um, is, in essence, a positive psychology, a psychology of human dignity and goodness, that we are not limited by our circumstance or our history. So when Nelson Mandela walked out of 27 years in Robben Island Prison, with so much dignity and magnanimity and graciousness, and not only inspired South Africa, but really changed the imagination of the world, he showed that they can put your body in prison, but no one can imprison your spirit. And he, it begins with something Nelson said at one point. He said, it never hurts to see the good in someone. They often act the better because of it. And so all the trainings and the practices and so forth are to awaken us to what is called our fundamental dignity and our fundamental goodness. And this is really in contrast to Western psychology, where if you read from the Freudian beginnings, um, it's a medical model, and almost all the focus is on disease and pathology and healing people and get, getting better from your diagnosis. Um, and of course, there's the DSM manual, and you get diagnosed, and you get a number for your particular diagnosis. And it's all categorized, your particular disorder. I can see it in you, yes. Um, and it helps to the insurance industry to figure out how much to pay to get you better or something like that. I mean, that's become our mental health, along with um, this, which is a, was a, a front page of one of the sections of the Wall Street Journal. And it says, so young and so many pills... Um, and it's more than almost a third of U.S. children, counting teens, um, take regular prescriptions such as ADHD meditation, medication, antidepressants, antipsychotics, and things like that. But that's how we're responding to our human situation. Um, there is another way. And it's not that there aren't appropriate times for medication, you know, or that we don't need to organize our medical system. But there's something more than this. Um, and the ability to see in this way, um, to see the fundamental goodness and dignity of uh, a human being and to see that their trauma and their grief or their anxiety is not who they really are. It's a visitor. Um, is extraordinarily healing. When the Dalai Lama takes your hand, which he does when he goes and teaches with different groups, and he likes to kind of go down and greet people. 
And um, the cool thing about it is that he doesn't let go. You're there and the Dalai Lama comes and if you're in the line or whatever and I've taught with him and things so I've had, a, had the fortune of a good time around him and he is, he's quite wonderful presence. So he takes your hand and you think, this is great. Dalai Lama looks in your eyes, blessing, nice and very good vibrations. And then he doesn't let it go. And you think it's like the politician kissing the babies and moving down the row and seeing how many people. But it's not how it happens. He holds on until you really get it, that he's there with you. You know, and you go, oh, wow. And then, ah. And then he looks again at you. You, you know, we really connected. Old friends, okay. And only then does he move on to the next person. And there's something about the depth of that connection that is almost um, more powerful and healing than any other intervention we can have to be seen and met in that way. So there's a story that I love, a true story of a school teacher in Ohio, um, a high school teacher, and one day when the class was really rowdy, um, her math class, she stopped the study. No one was going to learn math. And she put the 31 names of all the students in the class on the blackboard, and she said, for the rest of the period, write these names down, and then put next to the names one good thing that you admire or like about this person. And then she collected all those papers. And then, you know, some months later, maybe before Easter vacation, when the class was really not focused, she stopped the class again. And she passed out the papers. She'd cut them apart and pasted on a page with each person's name at the top, um, the different comments of good things that had been written about them by the other 30 students. Uh, a couple of years later, she got a call from a woman who said, you know, Robert, who was in your class, I know he was one of your favorite students. My son was in the military, and he was just killed in the Middle East. Very sad. And if you want to come, here's the memorial. So she went. And toward the end of the memorial, they were standing at graveside. And the mother said, I have to talk to you. She said, my son only carried a few things on the battlefield with him. And this is one. And she pulled out that page. And it had obviously been folded and unfolded many times of the 31 good things that people had seen about him. And then the woman standing next to them, the young woman who'd been a student, said, oh, yeah, um, I always carry mine, too, and pulled it out of her purse and then another young man on the other side said, oh, I made it part of my wedding vows. There is something so remarkable about seeing what is called in the um, mystical tradition the secret beauty of another being, to see in their eyes the, you know, the spirit that was born into them and to see that their goodness that has a very powerful transformative effect. So now I invite you for a moment to reflect on this and then t take a look around, not in a weird way. I mean, you're weird enough as you are um, without adding to it. But, but just imagine that you can see, you know, like the Dalai Lama, you're the kind of secretly the Dalai Lama or whoever it is, that you can just see the beauty and the dignity 
and the secret beauty of each face you look at. Just to look around a little bit. The seeds of goodness that were born into each person. And in what it's like to see people with these eyes. I read um, of a uh, chaplain, hospital chaplain, um, who twice a year would go through the hospital and she would bless the hands of all the people that work there. You know, just hold their hands and bless them for their work. You know, of course, the surgeons and the physicians and the ICU nurses and so forth. She said, but it was equally important to go in the basement and find those people who were, you know, washing the dishes and the ones who went upstairs to mop the floors and clean the bathrooms who were often so unrecognized. And she would hold their hands and she said, it was so touching because after she did this a number of rounds, they would wait half a year for the day that she would come through and hold and bless their hands. And someone said, this was one of the most meaningful things that happened to me all year long, that someone sees me and honors me and values me. So we, we need this in some way for our spirit or our soul. Now, the question is how to live in this way and how to awaken these capacities. It's not so easy in the modern world. Albert Einstein said, at least according to Scientific American, which is a reasonably authoritative source, he said, if you can drive safely while kissing a girl, you're simply not giving the kiss the attention it deserves, right? And our attention is split. We actually now have a new posture. We sort of gradually have learned to stand upright, you know, as human beings. But now I watch people walking down the street and their posture is kind of like this as they're looking at their smartphones, you know. Um, but there is something in what Einstein said about the capacity to pay attention where we are that changes everything. And the possibility of awakening, um, which is at the heart of um, Buddhist psychology, is offered in a wide range of trainings and tools, of trainings in mindfulness and training in forgiveness and training in love and kindness and compassion and training of attention to the body and to the stories that we tell um, and also connection to one another in deep ways. And a couple of years ago, I was uh, teaching at the first White House Buddhist leadership gathering, which I'm sorry to say I don't think is going to be happening again soon. <laughs> just leave that aside. Um, whatever your politics, you are welcome here. We really, really welcome. We want everybody to feel welcome here. But that doesn't seem to be the direction right now in the White House. Um, and it was one thing to talk about the principles of wise society, which there are in Buddhist teachings, because he met with kings and ministers and princes, and the society that respects each member and um, and uh, cares for the sick and the young and the elderly, those who are vulnerable, will prosper and not decline. And the society where people come together um, and listen to each other with uh, care um, and uh, uh, that, in, that protects the environment around them and so forth. These are universal principles you find in every 
great spiritual tradition. But the thing that was different that I could say after laying out that is that in the Buddhist teaching of the science of mind, there are ways to do it. It's not just that it's a lovely philosophy, but there are ways to train people, to train our own hearts and minds, so that um, these capacities grow in us. And we know it because um, now in 10,000 school systems and in thousands of hospitals and clinics, mindfulness-based intervention and social and emotional learning are happening and mindfulness in business and um, in the arts and even in athletics. You know, the Seattle Seahawks, when they won their Super Bowl or, um, you know, the uh, Chicago Bulls and the L.A. Lakers had a, in, in all their championship years, had a meditation coach, a friend of mine, George Mumford. Um, and it helped a lot of them. Um, but this, my friend George said, Michael Jordan didn't really need that. He had his own way. But in general, um, it spread very, very widely because of the neuroscience that is showing this, these trainings and capacities which fit with neuroplasticity, which in the last few decades has been, was a revolution in neuroscience that thought, okay, the brain and the nervous system are set when you're young and that's it, and too bad. But as we now know, um, every way that we pay attention and the way that we use our own attentional capacity is rewiring our nervous system and our brain. Um, and if you read things like Norman Doidge, um, who's a great um, New York Times bestseller, The Brain That Heals Itself or Changes Itself, you start to see um, all the science of this neuroplasticity. Um, or you look at what Adam Ghazali at UCSF does um, in um, mental trainings and the results of it and the, the cover of Nature magazine on um, new capacities to change the brain. Um, or Justin Rhodes at University of Illinois who documents neurogenesis from mental training, that new neurons are growing as well as new, new synaptic connections. And then there's the genetic level of it. So Elizabeth Blackburn, who won the Nobel Prize and who's here who, together with Alyssa Apple at the UC Medical Center, she won the Nobel Prize for telomeres, for the caps at the end of your chromosomes that protect them. And as they wear down, so too your physical well-being also diminishes until you die. And she showed, and it really boggled her mind, that after eight weeks of meditation, telomeres grew, you know, and that we have these capacities to change our, the, the epigenetics um, and the way that our genes are operating um, through our attention. The start is mindfulness, which I will call loving awareness, and you'll understand why as we go on. The capacity to be present where we are for our experience, rather than just being wandering or spaced out in various ways. And so when I work as, as a therapist, or I have, I have my clients come in and we sit together to start. They don't have to be Buddhists, spare their friends and family, but we want them to be Buddhists. It's a much better kind of endeavor. Um, and we don't make, it's not like there's some special meditative thing. It's just to quiet down and pay attention to what's going on so that when we do start to work together, there's a sense of connection. 
Because otherwise people come in and somebody just cut them off on the highway and they had a little argument and, you know, work that morning. And you get a kind of superficial connection. But in five minutes of being together and, and getting silent, there grows a capacity to connect from which all the deeper work can happen. And then I start to say, all right, you know, people will ask, how do I do this more? How do I learn? So begin to train in mindfulness. But it's not that easy. Um, People are not very embodied in our culture often. You know the line from James Joyce where he writes, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. So there's that kind of non-embodiedness. And then humorist and friend who lives in Fairfax, Annie Lamott, right? My my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone, you know? So you sit and meditate and you've got to find your body and then you look at your mind and go, oh dear, or whatever. Um, And so the first game in teaching mindfulness is to teach people how to be aware without judging and fixing and resisting and grasping and not make it a self-improvement project but rather the ability just to become the loving witness of this human life, which changes everything. Because usually we're trying to fix it. As the author, Florida Scott Maxwell writes, no matter how old a mother is, she looks to her middle-aged children for signs of improvement, right? And we've internalized that. Okay, now I'm going to meditate and I'm going to get better, whatever your idea of better is. And the game with mindfulness and the kind of fundamental or loving awareness training is to be spacious and gracious with what's actually true in your human life. And people don't tell us to do this very much. It's always like you to fix yourself and get more and do more and have more, and that's our culture. So this is more like being. And we use images of sitting like a mountain with all the weather changes or, or resting like a butterfly on a flower, not changing the flower, but there, and beginning to sense the breath, your life breath, um, as it comes in and out as a way to connect the, the body and mind. And in doing so, the breath becomes a kind of a mirror. Mullah Nasruddin, the Sufi holy man and sage um, from the Middle East, um, went into the bank to cash a check one day and they said, could you please identify yourself? So he reached in his pocket, pulled out a small mirror and said, yep, that's me, all right. (laughs) And what mindfulness begins to do as we start to train um, our attention to be quite present and begin often with this very universal and simple practice of being aware that your body is breathing is that the breath then becomes a kind of a mirror which, as you feel the breath, you notice the longing or the anxiety or the peacefulness or the, or the you know, frustration or all the different states of the heart and mind. You notice the tension in the body. You begin to notice what's actually going on in a way that we often don't pay attention to. And without being aware, it's not possible to really live um, in a free way. We're otherwise just at the, in kind of reaction to what's, what's coming. And sometimes in working with the breath, there will be 
some phrases or words that are invited, you can say to yourself softly, calm or centered or ease with each breath, a kind of invitation to quiet the mind somewhat. Um, And as you sit, even in the beginning, you'll feel a body pains and tensions, they show themselves. Um, And we carry those in our physical body, trauma and so forth, it's all here. Or you'll notice the moods you have. Um, You start to sense the unfinished business of the heart. If there's grieving that, you know, there's been a loss and you've been so busy running around, you sit and maybe then the tears will come because you're finally paying attention, you know, or longing or um, all kinds of other experiences. And my, my friend Maladoma Somme, who's a West African shaman and medicine man, when he first came here from, from um, Burkina, the Dagara people, he had gone through this great shaman, shama, shaman's training, although he has a couple of PhDs, one from the Sorbonne and one in the U.S., but he's mostly a shaman. And he said, but I came out of the shaman's training and I walk through your streets, and your streets are full of the ungrieved dead. And what he meant, he said, I could somehow see the spirits, homeless people who died, people who died in ICUs, taken care of, you know, in, in caring ways by the nurses and the staff, but whose family wasn't there, people who died in old age homes, and so forth. And he said, in our culture, um, we grieve and honor each person. Um, and that's a deliberate part of our, our Dagra people's way of moving through the world, that we celebrate each birth and we also celebrate the life at the end of it. And um, your culture has lost its attention to grief. And because of it, it still carries the grief in an unhealthy way. And so when you sit and you're quiet, the unfinished business of the heart starts to arise. And then you see the mind, cartoon in the New Yorker, which shows a car crossing the Utah desert with a sign, roadside sign that reads, your own tedious thoughts, next 200 miles, right? (laughs) And that's kind of meditation, the way it is, because you start to see your racing mind and all that it does. Um, And what you do in establishing loving awareness is to notice what's present without reacting to it and you notice there's um you know a racing mind or there's tears or there's longing or whatever experiences you have or tension and almost as if to bow to it you just acknowledge that this is the way that it is it's like this right now and you start to feel the experiences rise and fall like the breath rises and fall comes and goes and you let these experiences rise and fall like waves of the ocean around the breath And the research of people like Richie Davidson shows an increased capacity to approach challenges when you train mindfulness because these difficulties come. And what it is, the neuroscience language is, you expand the window of tolerance. Dan Siegel also uses that language. So that you're able to bear the tears. Or for some people, it's joy. Some people are so loyal to their suffering that... um, it's scary to let themselves feel happy or well. 
And so by expanding the window of tolerance, you learn how to be present for life without so much judgment and contraction and fear and aversion. This is what makes up our human life. And that already starts to invite a kind of well-being and freedom. So let's do a little sitting, a little meditation together, maybe 10 minutes or something like that. And many of you, probably most of you have already an established mindfulness practice. But we'll just practice together for a little bit. This first training of loving awareness and bringing together the breath and body experience and the mind. So when you're ready, let your eyes close gently. And from the earliest teachings of the science of mind, there is a most wonderful way for human beings to establish clarity and well-being, to overcome the difficulties of suffering and grief, to find an inner freedom of heart and mind. And this is the establishment of mindfulness mindful awareness, this great human capacity. So you sit now and begin, let, begin to let yourself notice um, the experiences of just being seated halfway between heaven and earth in this human form. And bring a kind attention mindfulness as loving awareness to simply notice the state of your body right now And also notice what other moods might be present, the state of the heart. And the kind of thoughts that are arising and passing all without judgment, just noticing. With loving awareness, you become the witness to body and heart and mind. And then you notice how easily it 
is how easy it is to drift off into thinking and remembering and analyzing. So to stay present, let yourself become aware of your body's breathing, this universal movement of breath. You can feel it as coolness in the nostrils or swirling, tingling in the back of the throat or the rise and fall of chest or belly. And if it's difficult to feel your breath, you can put one hand on your belly and feel it rise and fall in the palm of your hand and just leave it there. And with each breath, invite a sense of calm or ease. And let the other experiences, sounds and feelings and thoughts, let them rise and fall like waves of the ocean around the breath. And just bring your attention gently back to this breath, again and again returning to it as a first step in training mindfulness. Come back to the breath each time the attention wanders quite gently, like training the puppy. Sit, stay, very kindly.
Notice the breath from the beginning through the middle to the end of the in-breath or rising. Notice if there's a space between breaths and you can just relax in that stillness. Notice the appearance of the out-breath or the falling of chest, belly. As you feel the whole rhythm of breath, Invite a sense of steadiness, calm, or ease. 